really, really good question. So it's, it's a simple answer. Um, without priorities, you are in instant reaction mode, which I was for the first 30, 35 years of my life. Um, and when I say that, you know, there's, there's reacting to stimulus and then there's responding to stimulus. So I'm always trying to be very conscious. And again, I don't, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm, I'm always, always asking myself, um, am I responding or am I reacting? And so when I think that you're clear on your priorities and how you're investing your time, it makes it a lot easier to respond versus react. Life is an interesting journey. You never know where to take you. Peaks and valleys, twists and turns. Welcome to your next chapter. Regardless of what chapter you're in, success begins with taking ownership of the life you have. I guess I had to go to that place to get to this one. Taking back your life begins with understanding what mindsets you're operating with. In this podcast, I deconstruct the mindsets of coaches, entrepreneurs, and social influencers to provide you with the skills and mindsets to own and dominate your next chapter. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's episode. Today is episode 50, and I'm super excited for you to join me on this special occasion, my halfway mark to 100. This is your first time listening. Well, welcome. I have an epic guest for you today. My guest today is Brian Scrone. He is the author of What Matters Most. But he's not just an author. He's also a family man, a husband, a father to two kids. He's also a real estate mogul. His company, Jacks Investments, has done over $100 million worth of real estate investments during their career. He runs a passion business called Family Board Meeting. And that is a business where family members bring their kids out onto surfboards and they have conversations to connect them and have better relationships within the families, which I'm super stoked about. And Brian is here today to talk about what matters most, his book. We dive into the five apps. I am super excited to have him as my guest for this episode. And so without further ado, here is Brian Scrone. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me and my audience today. Thanks so much for having me, Philip. I'm super excited. This is episode 50, so I'm honored to have you here as my guest today. And you're joining us from Florida. I believe you're doing a little bit of surfing not that long ago. So just for the audience members, where are you right now? And just chat a little bit more about that. Yeah, so my home is, is in Florida. We're on a beautiful little barrier island called Bolano Beach, which is uh, basically St. Augustine, Florida, which is a really cool little historic town. It's actually where North America was founded. So we get quite a bit of uh, tourism coming through this little little beach town, this little surfing community that we have here. Nice. I never knew that about it. Maybe I'm going to have to put that on my list now of where North America was founded. Well, you got a place to stay, bro. <laughs> I love it. And so if you had listened to some of my podcasts, you would know that I start all of them off basically the exact same way. And I like asking all my guests, if your life was a book title, what would be the title of your book? And I know you just recently published a book, so that might be the title, <laughs> or you might have a completely different one. So I'm going to leave that one to you. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I, I guess I'm cheating because I literally just wrote a book and I cannot tell you how much time and energy and uh, creative thought and masterminding went into coming up with the title. So for me, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the name of my book that I just released is called What Matters Most, and that's that's the answer that I would give you for uh, for my own my own title of my own life. And so, 
why that book title for you this might be a little bit easier because you just wrote a whole book about it for other guests isn't a much harder <laughs> thing because they haven't had all the time to think about it in the masterminds but so why that book title why is that important to you yeah you know it's a good question so i, I joke in the in the beginning of the book where i say you know this book's taken me 43 years to write it because i'm 43 years old <laughs> So honestly, Philip, the, the time and the energy and the creative process that goes into writing a book is honestly a lot more. I bit off a lot more than I could chew at first, to be honest with you. I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. But as I sort of went through the uh, creative process and I was getting interviewed by a, a ghostwriter who ended up becoming my co-author, um, I just tried to look at my look back at my life and just distill it down as the older I get, the more simplicity that I desire in my life. I'm a young father. My wife and I have a beautiful, loving uh, marriage and we have a four and a five-year-old boy, but we, we you know, we're, we're trying to figure things out. You know, I mean, I, I don't have it all figured out. I'm trying to figure out how to be the best dad I can while I'm maintaining a, you know, a healthy, you know, loving marriage and running a couple businesses and launching a book. So, um, for me, it ultimately, the, the, the takeaway from the book and which also supports your, your, you know, your question is what would the title be is, I came up with what matters most, um, and we had lots of other titles. Uh, my wife and I actually laugh about some of the, a couple of the first titles that we came up with because so far and different uh, from what we came down to. But we came up with what matters most, and the subtitle is "Finding Your Focus with the Five Fs," which I'm assuming you and I will talk about a little later. Um, but really, when I when I look at any conversation or relationship, I really want to distill down as quick as I can. Um, you know, what matters most? What's the why behind this conversation? What's the why behind this relationship? Or what's the why behind this business uh, transaction or conversation we're having? So um, I'm sure you've heard, um, you know, uh, Simon Sinek. He's, he's pretty, uh, pretty out there, you know, start everything with what's your why. And um, he's I talk just, about him in the he's book. He's only slightly known, right? He's not that popular at all. So no one's heard of Simon <laughs> Sinek before. You know what, though? It's funny. Because you could ask, I could ask a random person that and they'd be like, no, I never heard of him. So I, I didn't want to assume. Oh, it's true. I, <laughs> I assume everybody in the world knows Tim Ferriss. When I meet a person, I'm like, you don't know who Tim Ferriss is? Like, how does your life exist without Tim Ferriss? But like that's, and these are the niches. Some niches are bigger than others. But it's interesting because, yeah, Simon Simic to some people, they don't know who he is. No. I'll, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll bet you if I asked the majority of my family members, they'd have no idea who Simon Simic is. But um, it, it sounds like you and I... Um, you know, have a lot in common and we're a lot about continuing education. Um, but to get back to your, your question, you know, what matters most to me just really distills down most of the conversation or the relationship, you know, what it is that you're working on. So the, the whole takeaway is, is you know, helping, trying to help the reader or the viewer or the listener of this podcast get hyper crystal clear on what their priorities are. Um, five relationships, the five F's I talk about, and they are faith, fitness, family, friends, and finance. Everyone's touching those relationships on a global basis. Um, they're timeless, you know, uh, relationships, I believe. And I want to help everyone get clear on their own priorities around those five F's and then give them some tools so that they can manage and invest their time accordingly. So it's, I'm not, I'm not here to prescribe anything to anyone just to present, um, some things that I've, uh, you know, either created or, you know, took from a teacher that I had. I'm a big fan of having mentors and, you know, continuing ed, like we talked about, and then distilling it down, putting my own tweak on it, obviously, and then, you know, sharing it with uh, my community. 
And so the book, What Matters Most, talks a lot about priorities, and you mentioned the five Fs just now. And so what does a life with priorities look like versus a life that doesn't have priorities from your point of view? Really, really good question. So it's a simple answer. Um, without priorities, you are in constant reaction mode, which I was for the first 30, 35 years of my life. Um, and when I say that, you know, there's, there's reacting to stimulus and then there's responding to stimulus. So I'm always trying to be very conscious. And again, I don't, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out, but I'm, I'm always, always asking myself, um, am I responding or am I reacting? And so when I think that you're clear on your priorities and how you're investing your time, it makes it a lot easier to respond versus react. So let me give you an example to try and make the rubber um, you know, meet the road here. So I mentioned I'm, I have a four and a five year old son. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, sometimes it can be absolute chaos or perceived chaos because they're both, they're a four and a five year old boy. They got a lot of energy. They're bouncing off the walls. Um, sometimes they're screaming stereo. So as a, as a new father, um, I'm always constantly trying to, um, respond versus react because if i reacted to them either chasing each other around the house and smashing each other or screaming or whatever it is they do as young boys um then i'd probably be not a good father and i'd probably be you know yelling back at them i mean how how it's it's easy for us to sit here and see how ridiculous it is for a parent to scream back at their children and yell at their children to tell them to stop screaming right i mean how ridiculous does that sound that said, being a new father, I can tell you I have screamed to tell them to stop screaming because I reacted. Um, I think that the job is there is being aware of our uh, choice to be able to react versus respond. And because my I, I, I am pretty clear on my priorities, Philip, I can say that with conviction. I mean, I, humbly, but around those five Fs, those five relationships, I'm crystal clear on how I prioritize them. And then I have some simple tools that I share in the book that you probably read about um, that help me that help keep me keep me uh, out of trouble and actually walking my talk. And I do want to get into some of those practical tools. I feel you did a great job of really making the book. You know, pe- authors write a book and they have these great ideas and concepts, but the implementation it fails. It lacks sometimes, and so I think you did a great job of that. <clears throat> but I want to talk a bit about your earlier chapters and give the audience some context about where you came from and why. You know, these five Fs are important because I think if people have some background to what you've come through, it's important. And so talk a little bit about how you grew up and what you feel is significant to your story. And we can just start off and go from there. Awesome. Awesome. So I grew up in uh, North New Jersey, about a half hour outside of Manhattan. So very close to um, a very fast lifestyle as a kid. I mean, you know, New York City, Wall Street city that never sleeps. I mean, I was, I went through this foggy decade that I talk about in the book, um, something in that's when I turned 13, it was hormonal. It was whatever it was. I just sort of went off the rails. I grew up in a pretty loving, nurturing environment. Um, had two, you know, my parents were married still. They actually just celebrated, uh, 50 years last year. Um, so two loving parents, the baby of three, but when I turned 13 and I started heading into high school, I just started making really bad decisions, went off the rails completely. I started doing drugs, drinking heavily, uh, sleeping with as many women as possible. Then I started selling drugs and I started getting arrested. And all of that 
debauchery sort of culminated um, when I was about 21 years old, living in Arizona. I was selling selling drugs full time for a living with a college degree, um, and I got two different girls pregnant in a six time six month time frame, and uh, both of those pregnancies resulted in abortion. And it really, I got to be honest with you, Philip. It it, uh, it put me into a tailspin of a really dark, dark depression and self-loathing and questioning, you know, is, is this life, you know, really worth living? Am I, am I the devil? I grew up in a Catholic, pretty dogmatic, uh, uh, religious Catholic background. My father's a deacon in the Catholic church. And so abortions are like the Cardinals. I had two of them back to back in a six month time frame. So I, when I fuck up, I really fuck up. Right. <laughs> and so uh, sorry for the swearing, but, um, I just, that time in my life was a really, really deep, dark place. And it was what I would consider my rock bottom. You know, you hear people talk about hitting rock bottom. I mean, I was getting arrested. I just got arrested right before that. Um, and then had that, those two experiences with those two young ladies. And for me, it was, I, I sort of wallowed around in my, in my shit there for a couple of years, trying to work myself out of the depression um, but the thing that I did right, reach out and ask for help. And I always, whenever I share the story, I say, if anyone's dealing with anything, um, do not try and figure it out on your own, reach out for help. Um, so I did do that. I reached out and, uh, I hired a, a local therapist in Santa Barbara, California, where I was living at the time. She gave me some really phenomenal tools. I, I talk about the tool in the beginning of the book there, um, where she said, you know, find your happiest baby picture and, um, whenever you're having a shitty day or you're going through an up and down, which we all do, right? I mean, life is full of ups and downs. Um, take out that, that, you know, that picture of yourself as a baby and, and, you know, just take a minute, get quiet and connect with the eyes of yourself as a beautiful, sweet, innocent, loving baby. And I don't think anyone can argue with, you know, the beauty and innocence of a, of a young child. And when you do that with a picture of yourself, um, and this may sound woo woo or it may sound crazy to some people. And at first I was like, I don't know about that. But then I was like, you know what? I'm going to give it a try. So I reached out to my mother living 3000 miles away in New Jersey. I said, ma, didn't tell her what, didn't tell my mom at the time what was going on. Didn't tell her that I had these abortions. Didn't tell her that I was seeing, seeking therapy. I said, Hey ma, send me a baby picture. You know, I forget what excuse. And I tell you what, I mean, it sounds simple. Um, I, if I could grab my I can't reach it right now. I would show you that I'm still to this day, 21 years later, 22 years later, um, carrying around that exact picture that my mom sent me. I got it laminated, fall apart in my wallet over 20 years, obviously. Um, and I whip it out when I need to, if I'm having a bump in the road or whatever, I just need to, just to get quiet, um, and connect with, connect with myself as a, as a younger, sweet, innocent version of myself. And, Honestly, Philip, it makes whatever bullshit that you're dealing with that day go away pretty quickly. And it's interesting you say that because I've recorded a podcast that's actually going to come out after this one. It's episode 51 with Adam Rubin, and he does personal growth. He basically does runs these programs in uh, Zambia, you know, in Africa, not Zambia, Tanzania is where it is. And but he talks about 
what we were chatting about was the entrepreneur's story and journey and how you do a lot of going into the unknown. And a big part for him when he started off was he just wanted to help people. And he said he was listening to his inner child and that we don't spend enough time listening to our inner child. And we basically end up the podcast wrapping up discussing how we need to spend more time in silence listening to that inner child. And it sounds like that's, you know, this photo idea concept is very similar to that where you're taking this photo and remember who was that little boy what did he want what did he stand for what are the values and it sounds simplistic but when you do it I think there's a lot of power in it because we all have that inner child that wants to be expressed and if we can connect back to it I think there's a lot of power in that absolutely absolutely and there's you know there, there's so much simplicity in it and at the end of the day it's just a, a, a really simple reminder of how pure and how innocent we really are, whether we're 43 or four or however old you and you, you know, your, the listeners are, it, it's really not age specific. It's just a simple way to get us quiet for a minute and take us back to that. The, tr- the truth of who, who and what we are. Um, you know, I talk about in the book a lot about faith and I truly believe that we're perfect divine spirits trying to figure out how to have this human experience. And this is that up and down shit that we're talking about. <clears throat> and that may sound woo to people, but the reality is I think that once you embrace that, uh, that truth, um, it makes whatever bumps in the road a lot easier to deal with. And you're, you're able to laugh and love and yourself a lot quicker when you, when you realize that that's the, that, that is the truth. I think that, and again, speaking from experience, you know, this are thinking they're human beings trying to figure out how to get lucky and have this once in a while lucky spiritual experience. But the reality is the complete opposite of that. We're perfect and beautiful and whole and complete just the way we are. Put religion aside. This has nothing to do with religion. Um, and we're trying to figure out how to around around in these meat bags that we've been rented for 100 years from whatever the higher power is, right? So if you look at it like that, I think it just makes things a lot easier and lighter to deal with when you do hit those bumps in the road. And I totally agree with you about reaching out and asking for help because it's interesting. I came forward with being bisexual on this podcast over a year ago now. And I think you know a bit about this. Maybe you don't. But it was interesting because I told the girls dating at the time and I was doing this um, course like advanced sexual mastery and it was talking about you got to let go of all your emotional baggage. And so I opened up to her. She was the first person I ever told. And it's interesting because it spiraled into a chain of events where I hired a coach and that coach is like, you need to step into this if you're going to be having a podcast, if you stand for truth and authenticity, this is your truth, this is your authentic self. And since that time, I've come so far forward, right? But it all began by reaching out to one person and then it snowballed to me living publicly with it, which I never thought I was ever going to do. And so it's interesting because I think I'm a huge believer in asking for help. But what I wanted to ask you as well about is you talk about the importance of forgiveness and self-love in the book as well. You identify that reaching out for help was one thing, but it's also forgiveness and self-love. How do those two things play into that too? Because I feel those are very important things and I want you to touch on those. Yeah, yeah. So they're, you know, they're, they're completely personal and subjective, obviously. I mean, self-love is, is going to look different for, for me and, and how it might look for you or, or something. So that's the first thing is I think it's just so important to remind everybody that there is no right or wrong way. There's only the way that works for you, right? So for me, uh, when I think about self-love, um, I, I immediately think about nurturing and loving on myself and way, not a narcissist, you know, narcissistic way. Um, for me, that's real simple. It's 
going back to those five relationships, um, taking care of my family, care of my fitness, and then family, friends, and finance uh, place behind that. But it, you know, it may sound absurd to say that you know my faith and my and my fitness are a priority over my family and my friends and my business. But um, I think that goes back to your question of, you know, what is talk about self-love? So for me, I try to keep it really, really simple. When I talk about faith in the book, I talk about taking time on a, on a daily basis for yourself. A meditation and yoga practice that I've had for 20 plus years. Um, that's, that works really well for me every day in nurturing and loving on myself. It sets the tone for the day. Um, and if I don't get it and I don't do it on a regular basis, then honestly, Philip, I can get cranky pretty quick wife about that. <laughs> She'll say, go, go, go be quiet by yourself and go get a surf. And I have actually incorporated, um, I, you know, I can, we talk about flow in the book too, and you compartmentalize these relationships, but the flow to life, right? So I have a, you know, I have a, a practice that I do at the beach before I get in the surf or I go training on a paddleboard. Um, so immediately the flowers of every, every day that I live is taking care of, you know, self-loving on myself through taking time for myself, um, even though I have two kids that I could be home, you know, scrambling, trying to serve them or, or help my wife. And we take turns and we help each other, but I take the time on a daily basis to get quiet, nurture and love myself a little bit with what I call meditation. If that works for you, if not, then find something that works for you. Um, and then I, and then I'm, um, active, you know, I, I work out either in the ocean or in the intercoastal waterway on a daily basis. Um, and then those other things, I can come home and be the best family, you know, father and husband and friend to my friends that I can be. My businesses seem to run a lot smoother when I'm, when I'm uh, taking care of myself through that, that self-love that you, that you have. So forgiveness is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> um, but I shouldn't say it's a whole nother conversation because it ties right back to the love on ourselves, right? Because I think, that there's this you know this paradigm or thought that about forgiveness it's something outside of us. we have to forgive somebody that hurt us in the past the reality is is you got to yourself and then again all the detail will take care of itself so for me because of all the shit that i got myself into that i shared with you um i had a i had a really hard time um i was telling myself i was the devil basically and like you know if you're if you're a christian catholic guy that as you were raised and you know, what the hell are you doing having two abortions? I struggled with it for a while. And I do want to say that it's a process, not an event. I don't want, again, I don't have it all figured out. And every day I get up and I work on myself. But um, forgiveness is an interesting one. I think um, I thought I had forgiven myself working with that therapist and using those tools, the baby picture and um incredible experience with a priest that I reached out to that I talk about in the book that um, I was just spilling my beans to him talking. I'm so depressed because I had these two abortions and he just stopped me dead in my tracks. I'll never forget. He put his, put his hand on my knee and he said, son, you could either continue beating yourself up, which is obviously not working for you. Or you can realize that you're, you know, you're one of the luckiest guys in the world because two guardian angels um, now looking out for you for the life. So I went from this complete crisis mode of telling myself that I had had these abortions and I was the devil, ask, reaching out, asking help from a complete stranger. I don't even know the guy's name. I don't even know if he's still alive, to be honest with you. Um, but I feel 
for me, I feel like it was God. I, I use the word God directly talking to me through this man. And he, and he gave me that most beautiful, loving, um, for, you know, filled with love and wisdom and forgiveness, um, getting me to forgive myself and say, stop beating yourself up. You're not the devil. Um, and consider yourself lucky because now you have this, these two beautiful guardian angels to watch for the rest of your life. And I tell you, Philip, it was like the, you know, one of those aha moments in life where, you know, the weight of the world was lifted off my chest sitting in that stranger's office with the, with those beautiful, uh, loving words of wisdom that he gave me. And to be honest with you, that, that really, really had a profound impact on me and, 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 and starting this path down true forgiveness. Um, then fast forward 20 years later, writing this book, uh, about a year ago. And my buddy started interviewing me and asking me questions past and this, that, and the other, and to get the story out of me. Um, and I started talking about these abortions and I cannot tell you how much emotion and energy came back up out of me. Um, you know, my wife uses the analogy, you know, you had this, this wound that was, that, that, uh, was healed, but you have this scar tissue that will always remain. And that's, I think what I'm processing now, 20 something years later. Um, I'm at a place where I've opened up and I've, I've talked about it from stage and, and some large events, um, to a full of complete strangers. And it's been really cathartic and, and uh, nurturing for me and for me and, you know, allowing myself to truly forgive myself for what I did 20 years ago. Um, and so I think that, again, it's a process, not an event. Um, I am in a place in my life where I'm, I'm more excited about sharing my story and helping people than I am about getting judged. Um, and so that, that, that excites me. That's what gets me out of bed and gets my juices flowing and, uh, you know, gets me excited to have a conversation with you and your audience like this today. And it's beautiful that you bring that up because it's a part of the book that I actually wanted to ask you about. And because I believe you talked about how you're going surfing that day and the waves were flat and you decided that you're not going to surf and you went for this walk and you went and found this priest. And to me, it's a great example of a reframe, right? Where you take a negative and turn it into a positive. And this priest said, like, yes, this abortion, this thing that you're holding over yourself for so long, that was such like a weight and demon. And you're still processing it. And, and I can re like relate, right? I, I never had an abortion, but how hard that would be. And I just talked to somebody about that on podcast here. But it'd be a challenge. And so like, but he said, you have these two beautiful angels that are now watching over you. And I feel it's such a great shift, right? And a very lucky incident where, yeah, that's the moment in time where it began to shift, but it takes time, right? You're still 20 years later processing and you're surprised yourself how much emotion came out when you're writing the book with Xander. And so I think it's uh, it was a beautiful story when I read it. And I think it's truly interesting. And it is shifting perspective and reframing something from a terrible experience and a bad experience into a positive one. Yeah, crisis or opportunity, right? Like I mentioned before, and it really opened up. Uh, I had a beauty, beautiful, loving relationship with my wife. I shared all this, wrote this book, and you know, going deep with her into the conversations and the emotion that I that I experienced in and around um, the abortions, and you know, it opened her um, in in sharing some stuff with me that I wasn't aware of from her, you know, childhood. Um, it's completely transformed my relationship with my parents. So the first time that I talked about these abortions public was uh, at Philip McKernan's one last talk. He had me on his stage, and I actually brought my father, um, who is the deacon in the Catholic Church, the former Marine, the Sicilian, pretty stern guy that I grew up with, right? <clears throat> and I was like, fuck it, what do I got to lose? I'm going to bring my father to this event, um, and, you know, 
he responds. And I can't tell you the response that I got from my father. I have a recording that I go back and listen to once and I, and I get emotional just thinking about it. But at the end of my talk, I, I aired my, you know, I told my story um, and, and my father actually grabbed the microphone at the back of the room. And so this is in the Vancouver Improv Center in front of a couple hundred people. And I'm standing on stage. I'm pretty emotional, pretty exhausted because I didn't sleep the night before all the anxiety and fear I had about how is he going to respond? How is Philip going to respond? How is the audience going to respond? You know, this guy's, this guy's crazy. And I got the most loving, nurturing response, not only from the audience, but my father actually asked Philip for the, for the microphone. And I was like, oh shit, here we go. You know? And he microphone right after, while I'm still on stage. And he said, you know, I just want to tell you, I love you. Um, I don't judge you. And I hope that two young sons who are his grandchildren uh, grow up to be the man that you are someday. And, and, you know, I broke down like a baby on stage, obviously getting the feedback from my father, who I was so worried that it was going to crush him and hurt him and this, that, and the other. And I got the complete opposite. Uh, it just totally opened up my relationship with him since then. I mean, we've had so many deep conversations that never would have happened if I didn't open up like that and get vulnerable with him. So then I had a similar experience with my mom about six months later. Again, she had no idea of the, the uh, extent of the trouble I was getting myself into 20 years ago. She had no idea about these abortions. Um, and my mom, I'm really close with her. Um, I would consider her one of my best friends. But I had this conversation with her in Ireland on this retreat that we went on together. I took her for a walk and I just basically shared with her the detail of everything that I went through through that, that really dark uh, decade that I just talked about. And specifically talked about the abortions with her and how I really was beating myself up over it. And she stopped me immediately. I can remember exactly where we were walking. And she said, you know what, honey, I love you. I don't even need to forgive you. She said, I just wish you would have told me this 20 years ago because I would have been praying for my unborn grandchildren for the last 20 years on a daily basis. So, I mean, it's like she's like a saint, obviously, the way she responded. My father gave me this beautiful, loving, nurturing response. My wife you know, held me, cried in, in bed one night and talked about the pain. And, and then she opened up to me again, like I said. So it's amazing what happens when you when you start to open up and you start to forgive yourself. Immediately, the people that that, that matter most to you, um, your relationship is going to go deeper with them. Your conversation is going to go deeper with them. A lot of the surface bullshit that we that we waste a lot of time on. Um, even with the people that we care about will go away fairly quickly when you start to open up and you start to love and forgive on yourself and, and really just talk about what's on your heart and mind. And it's interesting that you share those stories because I have a similar story with my dad. When I came forward about being bisexual, I asked my dad, is there anything I'd ever do that would make you not love him? Because similar to you, you grew up in a Catholic household, Eastern European, where there was a lot of pressure to... You know, you date women, that's how it goes. Anything else in the church's eyes is seen as evil and bad and it's a big cardinal sin. And so I was really worried that I would lose my father's love because I knew that he's very conservative when it comes to certain things. And so he was very surprised by that. He's like, there's nothing that you could ever do where I wouldn't love you, right? And it was amazing to hear those words because the unconditional love in our family is not always something that is shared or talked about or felt. And so... It's interesting how we fear being abandoned, but in the end, we I found a very different experience, and it sounds like you had a very dis different experience as well. 
Yeah, it was the, you know, all the fear and anxiety that I filled myself with. Um, the response that I got from those that I really care about was the complete opposite of that. It was nothing but love and nurturing and forgiveness. And, um, you know, for them, there was really nothing to forgive. I was just sharing something with them that I went through. And, um, you know, we, we tell ourselves these stories and we have these questions in our mind and we just, there's so much it's just a bunch of bullshit. And once you open up and you're authentic and you're vulnerable with people, it just, it sends number one, it allows you to start to forgive yourself in a genuine way. And number two, it opens up those relationships. Like I talked about. And then, so let's go back to the five F's you've mentioned them briefly already, but mention them again <clears throat> and then talk about how you implement them into your life. Because that's what I really did like about the book was how, easy it was for you to actually take these ideas and implement into your life and how you do that for yourself? Yeah, good question. So the, the five F's are faith, fitness, family, friends, and finance. And so I when, I when my feet hit the floor each morning, I am crystal clear on how I prioritize those things. So I talked a little bit earlier about, you know, my personal practice around my faith and I have a meditation yoga practice and then I have a workout. Um, so that honestly is the talks about and takes care of and shares the tangible tools that I go into depth in the book about um, around faith and fitness. I, you know, I think whatever works for you, keeping in mind that this is I'm not here to prescribe, but this, this is all very personal and subjective. But, but I have figured out things that work for me from people that are a lot smarter and who I would consider mentors. You know, these tools that I share and then I put my own tweak on them. But I mean, meditation. Med Meditation's a no-brainer for me. I think any problem that anyone's dealing with anywhere in the world um, can be resolved through a simple meditation practice. You know, Deepak Chopra is one of my mentors, and I've gone to some of his classes, and I remember him saying, you know, I, I deal with cancer patients, and I deal with couples going through divorce, and I deal with homeless people, and I deal with billionaires. And he said, my one overlying um, cookie-cutty cookie dealing with anything is meditate. <laughs> um, because when you get quiet, it reminds you of your, your innocence and your purity that we were talking about earlier. And it also allows you to slow down the, the 60 to 80,000 thoughts that we're having a day. I mean, that's the average, um, you know, science has proven that the, that the average human is, is having, you know, 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. So, I mean, picture, picture that, like that down and start to nurture and um, give yourself the the ability to be able to respond versus react like we talked about earlier. I mean, your life is going to be, you know, that perceived chaos that a lot of people, the, that's the mode that a lot of people are telling themselves they live in, that they're just trying to survive the day and get through the day and get through the work week and get through another year. And I mean, shit, we're here to enjoy and, and have fun and experience and love and laugh and, and you know, honestly, meditation has been a game changer for me. I think at first it's going to scare the shit out of people. Um, um, it's going to feel uncomfortable. Um, it's not, it's going to feel awkward. It's just like anything else. It's just, that's why they call it a practice. I think once that you, you start it and it becomes a rhythm in your life and a habit start really, really slow. I talk about this, this uh, meditation app called simply being, um, there's a lot of apps out there. You can just do your own homework around that, but get some, get some help, you know, uh, you know, leverage the tools that are out there, uh, um, and start to give yourself that space. So that, that's how I would, um, talk about faith, um, for me. And again, it has nothing to do with 
Um, fitness, real, real simple. Find something you're passionate about. If you don't, then your fitness and you know going to a gym or whatever it is that you're trying to do is not going to be sustainable. For me, I am so passionate about the ocean. I crave it. Um, if there's no surf, then I'll go and um, I'll go for a long distance paddle training or I'll go for a hike. Something outside for me that 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 gets me excited. So that makes my fitness sustainable, and I'm, it's something that I'll be doing for, you know, I talk about in the book, my life summit is to, to surf with my great-grandchildren on my 100th birthday. Um, so the only way that's going to happen is, is if I keep doing what I'm doing and taking care of my body. Um, that's the sort of the tool or the takeaway that I, I talk about in fitness is find something that you're passionate about, something you enjoy, that makes you sweat and keeps you moving, um, and go do it on a daily basis. I don't care if it's dancing or yoga or or ice hockey, or surfing, or whatever it is. Um, only you, only you know what's best for you. But have fun with it, and, and then it'll, it will become sustainable and become part of your lifestyle. Um, the next F, Philip, I talk about in the book is uh, family. Uh, family is is huge for me. I, my my father is Italian, Sicilian. My mother's Irish, Catholic. So you know. Family is a big, has always been, and will always be a big part of my life. Um, I have now um, two young boys, four and five. Um, in in the chapter around family, and we've created a business around this. We have a, a company called Family Board Meetings, where we bring parents and parents and children together one on one. And I think that the the formula for our business and for our retreats is that one on one. Um, and I think that there's magic in that. I don't think I know and I have experienced and lived magic in separating um, parts of the family one-on-one to make the whole family um, stronger. So what that looks like is we call them mini board meetings. So I'll take one of my children. Um, I do them I do them once a month. Um, we, we talk about doing them once a quarter to start so we don't overwhelm people. Um but how simple is it to, if you have multiple children, to grab one of them, you know, on a monthly basis or a weekly basis or whatever it is for you, and hyper-focus, take a magnifying glass to that relationship. So you actually set a date with each child. You put it on your calendar. We're all busy people with busy schedules. Um, just the fact that you will approach your loved one. If you're not a parent, then you can do this with your, your spouse or your partner or your, your elderly parents, anyone you care about. Approach them and say, I want to have, you know, set up this quarterly meeting with you. We call it a, we call it a board meeting. Um, and just hyper-focus on the relationship. Go out, have fun, be outside. The rules are once a quarter, um, no, absolutely no electronics. Um, put the electronics away. Um, that is a game changer. That simple little thing of put the computer and the phone away. Get outside, go have fun together. And then at the end of the, the date or the board meeting, we usually say minimum four hours um, ask we do what's called the focused loved one or your child or whoever you spent the time with hey hey honey what did you learn about me what did you learn about yourself is there anything I can do to to, uh, to support you is there anything I can do um, to work on our relationship and one after you've had that four hours of fun and you've been outside and you're breathing fresh air it is incredible how you know your children will open up to you or your elderly parents or your spouse or whoever it is you're having this date with. I know this sounds incredibly simple, but I can't tell you what a game changer it is for, um, has been for myself, and I know it's been for you know hundreds 
kinds of families that we've served through our retreats. I mean, we literally just, I just literally just got off the plane on Tuesday coming back from Utah and, and uh, we had about 22 families um, with their children um, come and spend, you know, three days one-on-one with their children. And we took them through some really fun activities, but no. Um, and obviously in four days we go, we go pretty deep with that. Um, so we, you can read about that. Um, I mean, I talk about it in the book in depth. So it's something that I, I do with my own children. Um, I do, I do with anybody that I care about and want to go deeper with. Um, the next, the next one is friends. This is, uh, J- Jim Rohn is one of my mentors. Unfortunately, he passed a couple of years ago, but his wisdom lives on. And I talk about the rule of five in there. And I know you and I talked about it earlier, uh, Philip, but that is, an absolutely brilliant tool that anyone can use and it's free and you can use it for the rest of your life. And the rule of five is as simple as sitting down with a pen and the five people that you're spending the most time with and then asking yourself the question, do I want to become the sum average of these five people? Because the, the harsh reality is that you're going to be. So whoever you're spending time with is you're going to start to walk like them, talk like them, take on their personalities. And so I go into some detail about the rule of five, but it's no on those names and asking yourself the question, do I want to be the average of these five people? And if you don't, then you need to create some healthy boundaries and you need to have some, maybe some tough conversations with people that you're spending time with and start to separate yourself. Because if you don't, and then only you are going to deal with, uh, you know, the, the consequences of that. And we are who we surround ourselves with. Um, I'm, I'm a, you know, friendship. I have some incredible friendships, um, and I don't, I, I don't take them lightly. So the, the five people that I have their names written down in my wallet that, that I carry around with me, um, and those five people pump me up and give me energy and make me a better man, and hopefully, um, you know, reciprocating for them. Um, so that's that's the tool around friends, and then finance, Philip. I could, you know, I could talk for days on. Um, uh, I think it's important about the difference between, for me, it's been a real estate investment career for 20 years. And so what I've learned through that and going through ups and downs and being a, started out broke at 25, was a multimillionaire by the time we were 30. And then I was, um, you know, almost broke again by the time we were 32 because the global financial crisis of 2008, and, um, you know, we lost everything. And so we've since, since 2008, fast forward, we're blessed and we've rebuilt and we're um, approaching, you know, conversation around business and money and overhead a lot differently. Um, but I think that the tool or the takeaway that I would love to impart around finance is figure out how you can get your money or other people's money working for you versus you working for your money. Because that can become, um, for a lot of people and for most people, it's a grind, you know, going to work, they're not passionate about it. And it's something they're just doing to get through. And so, um, you know, start to edu- educate yourself on investments. For, for us, it's, it's, it's always been about real estate. Real estate's a, it's treated us really good. Um, it's also humbled the shit out of us in 2008, like I talked about. Um, but still to this day, we're, we, we are using other people's resources and money and expertise and, and leveraging other people's expertise and money um, to allow me to have this call with you in the middle of the day. 
have a surf this morning and then when we hang up I'll go pick up my kids from from a little camp they're at so it, it creates this freedom of time and I think at the end of the day Philip regardless of how um, your work or what it is that you're creating in life people everyone wants come up with more free time, right? I mean, I'm me included. I'm still trying to fine tune that on a daily basis and ask myself the question, how can I be more efficient so that I can go focus on the things that matter most to me? Um, so hopefully I wasn't rambling too much there, but I just wanted to touch on um, that, you know, the viewers and the listeners can implement immediately um, and use every day for the rest of their, their lives. I'm a big, you know, get shit done type of person. And I, I, I never want to talk from theory. Um, I, I I'd rather, you know, share from, share from experience. And I do want to, because yeah, finance is your, one of your areas of expertise for certain, because you've built an eight figure real estate business from the homework that I did. And so I wanted to ask, how did you get into real estate? Like, cause it sounds like, you know, like you talked about earlier on, you're kind of in the gutter. You had these two abortions. What was that transition? Why real estate? How did you find yourself in that direction? Yeah. So I had a college degree in criminal justice. Um, wasn't obviously going to put that to use because of my rap sheet and all the arrests that I had. <laughs> um, so I had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So I started teaching in Santa Barbara right around the time you're talking about with going through all those abortions and all that trouble that I got myself into and being depressed for a couple of years. The most beautiful, but one of the most expensive places in the country, uh, Santa Barbara, California. Started teaching. Um, I've always loved teaching and loved children. Um, so I taught um, for about five years. I counseled and taught at a place called Devereaux, which is a really unique place. Um, the children there are, um, they live there, they get their therapy there. They're, most of them are wards of the court. Um, they've been taken away from their parents. Um, so I went through that experience and it taught me a lot about, you know, myself and teaching and children and lots of uh, learning lessons out of that. But the harsh reality were paying me, I think at the time uh, it was like nine bucks an hour or something like that, or like, you know, nine fifty an hour. And I'm living in one of the most expensive places in the country. So obviously the credit card debt continued to ramp up and that was not. So what drove us, um, when I say us, my business partner and I at the time, um, to, to look outside of for somebody else and making nine or ten bucks an hour, um, which wasn't sustainable, was, you know, let's go figure this shit out on our own. If we're going to be working our asses off, which I was at the time, I was probably working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week uh, just to try and pay my credit card minimums. Um, we said, let's go do some homework and figure out what's out there that we could create ourselves. So all of our homework and due diligence brought us back to hyper focused on money at that time because we didn't have any. <laughs> Um, and all of our homework brought us back to um, real estate seem, seemed to be producing the, the most millionaires and the most um, you know, successful people in the world, not only through using real estate as the tool. So we started taking classes. Um, we raised money from um, a family member for the first deal that we did. Again, mm -hmm. you know, keep in mind, I'm teach, teaching 60 hours a week at the same time. Right. can't pay my credit card minimum payments. I can't pay the rent. I'm just trying to survive, basically. So it took a lot of balls, but we did some homework. We put together a real simple little business proposal or plan, um, presented it to a family member. We, we deal. 
Um, we told them that we've been doing some homework, that we hired a consultant, um, and they, they bit. And, and we did our first deal, and that was about 1,000, 1,200 deals ago, um, about 20 years ago. And, you know, one deal turned into two, and two, two turned into four, and it was totally organic. Um, we did do really well in our first run, because um, as you said, I went from, from depressed and, you know, can't pay the bills at 25 to five years later, we were multimillionaires. The reason that happened is because is we were went very aggressive into a buy and hold strategy, which means just buying and holding rental property in, in a place called Bakersfield, California, which at the time had the biggest run up in equity in, in real estate history. So between 04 and 06, we had 200 houses that you know tripled in value. Um, we sold them all in that two year time frame, and we had you know multimillion dollars um, that we were um, then scrambling to figure out what were, what were we going to do with all this money. We're young. We, we didn't know, you know, obviously we didn't want to sit on it or, or, or put it in the bank because everyone's telling us, you know, you need to reinvest and, you know, parlay it and, and go big and do more. And um, that was a huge mistake. I should have surfed for five years um, <laughs> because if I did that, then I, I would be in a, a much better position today, but I didn't do that. And, and I listened to what, what other people were telling me. And we plowed millions of dollars into Florida in the market in 2007 and 2000, by 2008, you know, the, the whole world was unraveling and, uh, things that we were paying, you know, a hundred thousand dollars for in Florida at the time were, you know, six months, 12 months later worth $25,000. So all of our wealth and equity did just evaporated overnight, basically. Um, and you know, we, we licked our chops and licked our wounds years in 2012 we started dipping our toe back in the water we just basically fought off creditors my wife for those couple of years we were a newly married couple so learned a lot about her when i met her i was a multimillionaire. and about two years later i had to go to her and say honey i can't pay the light bill um so she stuck behind me she worked her ass off she put food on the table helped me fight off some creditors for a few years um and then we started to rebuild our portfolio in florida where we invest in, and live full-time today. So, you know, it was one of those start out broke, um, get rich real quick, fairly quick, um, go broke again. And now we're back to a much more stable, simple model where we're hyper-focused on, you know, long-term um, wealth creation. And so super fascinating, by the way. And I read that basically at one point you had $75 million invested in Jacksonville or somewhere around that area and you had 800 homes. And were you able to do that because you had so much success in California that you were able, because my question is like, how do you get $75 million, right? It seems like you went from not having a lot to 75 million. It's because you had so much success in California that you were able to leverage that into more mortgages to get 75 million worth of assets under your name. Is that what happened? Yeah. So I'm happy you said that because I want to clarify, we, we've never had 75 million in assets at once. Um, so that's a gross number that was probably in, in my bio that you read. And, and that number is well over a hundred million now. Never all at once. That's just over our career that we've done that much in transactions. Gotcha. So, um, so it's, it's a much smaller number, but it, it's still a, it's still a healthy number. Um, you know, today it's, we're in the, in the range of, uh, probably 20 to 25 million, uh, portfolio. Um, and to answer your question, how do you do that? What I said before, it's by using other people's money, resources, and expertise um, and building relationships. So we we have the way we that we rebuilt our business because our credit got destroyed in the downturn um, is we use what's called private 
but at banks. We literally just uh, did our first bank transaction in, in a large refinance in the last month uh, because we've since the meltdown have cleaned up our credit and got all that mess cleaned up. But what we did is, is you have to be flexible, right? So we got the shit kicked out of us in 2008. Our credit got destroyed. We had all kinds of foreclosures and short sale activity. So no bank was going to work with us. So we had to go to private lenders, um, people that we had worked with before the meltdown that, that trusted us, um, that we always tried to do the right thing. And we went back to them and leveraged into um, about 150 properties in Florida private finance. So I think the moral of the story is, is you have to be creative and you have to be flexible. Um, and the reality is we had to pay a premium on that money because obviously borrowing money from private individuals is a lot more expensive than borrowing it from the bank. It's what, what we call hard money in uh, in the real estate world. So I, I think the takeaway there is, is, is number one, leverage and always use, don't be afraid to use other people's money and expertise, which we still do today, 20 years later. Um, and number two, um, you know, ask for help and you, and you have to be flexible. I mean, you have to create rules around business, especially rules around investing. Flexible. I mean, if we just said, you know what, we're going to rebuild when the banks allow us to borrow again, then then we would not have a business. I mean, we would have literally had to go figure out another business. So we said, well, we're going to suck our money from private individuals and we're going to rebuild our business and just be really conscious of our overhead. I think overhead is a big takeaway too, which I talked about in the book. Um, so we rebuilt our business today in a way that is strategic and we do a lot of volume, but all of our people on our team, we have about a team of about 60 to 65 uh, individuals and they're all freestanding independent little businesses. Um, so we don't have a lot of fixed overhead, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't have a, those 65 people on our team. There's, there's business partner and I, a staff accountant and a couple of admin girls that are on our team. Everyone else is subbed out. So I'm not scrambling to make pay. Everyone is eating what they kill and, and being compensated based on performance. Hmm. Super interesting. I feel like we could have a whole podcast on just real estate, but this is not the uh, podcast for that conversation. But I do appreciate those insights because I do, yeah, anything that I've ever read about real estate, it does talk about leveraging other people's money and using that to your advantage. And so it sounds like that's the formula you guys have been using. And it makes sense, right? If there's people that have money sitting around that are looking for, you know, whether it be a 3% return, a 5% or a 10, and you can start making something along those lines that delivers that, then you definitely have an opportunity to create yourself a portfolio of investments. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'd be happy to, to come back at a later date because you're right. I mean, I for days on real estate, it's all I've done for 20 years. So um, it, it's a phenomenal tool. And for the listeners, I think the takeaway is, is just ask yourself the question, how, how do I get, you know, my money and other people's money working for me versus me just going and grinding it out every day? Because um, that's not sustainable either. Totally agree. And so what are your thoughts on, for people that don't have a lot of money, because I invest more into stocks because stocks to me, it's like I can have $500, I can invest that. $500 is not going to get me a mortgage, right? And so for people, do you still, if people don't have a lot of capital, do you still recommend for them to try to get into the market somehow? Or what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I, I, to this day, 20 years later, after making you know, millions of dollars and, and losing it and then rebuilding, we're still using other people's money. I mean, that that conversation or, or tone will never change in my voice. I mean, I think that's the beauty 
be it real estate or any investment, is leverage. Um, how do you do that? I think that you have to start slow and humble and, and just start with one deal. Um, same way we did 20 something years ago. So I, I use the joke, you know, fam- the three F's is how you get started. It's families, fools, and friends. Um, so if you can't find a fool that, that will trust you, then you're probably going to have to start with family and friends that, um, might have some extra cash laying around. You, you need to make sure you're doing your homework and doing your due diligence on the deal, whether it's real estate or stocks and present it to them and say, Hey, here, here's this opportunity. Um, I'll do, I'll do the legwork. I'll do whatever it takes to get the deal done. Um, if you'll be a, a partner. Um, and they bring the capital, you bring the, the sweat equity, what we call it, you know, getting your hands dirty. Um, and you ask them the question, this is a huge, huge takeaway. And you could use this question in intimate relationships, parent-child relationships, investor conversations, ask them the question of what's going to make them happy. You never open your mouth first because you have no idea what's going on in that potential investor's mind. Um, you just, you said something powerful before they might have a couple million dollars laying around in a in a bank CD that's earning them 2% right now. And if you present them a deal, a real estate deal, for example, that can throw off a 10% return, which is very realistic, they'd be thrilled. But let them answer the question, what's going to make them happy before you stick your foot in your mouth? I mean, I, we've, we had a business mentor teach us that 20, now probably 15 years ago when we were about five years into business. And that, that one question has saved literally saved us, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars by me allowing the investor that I'm dealing with, tell me what's going to make them happy. Um, because I have no idea, you know, what they're dealing with. They might, they might have, you know, you have no idea what's going on in people's, uh, you know, private lives or finances. So, um, that's how I would say to get started, start with family and friends, do your homework and ask them what's going to make them happy. And I feel that's a great place to uh, start wrapping up. I love that question. What's going to make you happy? And so any last words that you want to leave the audience with going back to priorities and setting priorities for yourself in your life, any final thoughts or words you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, yeah. So it might be a little confronting, but I'm, uh, I'm really coming from a place of love and wanting to help people. So when, when you look at those five relationships, again, they're faith, fitness, family, friends, and finance, just write them down on a piece of paper. And I have this tool in the book. You can download it on my, on my site for free. Just spend, spend some time, some quiet time and asking yourself the question, how do I prioritize those five relationships? And then you have to ask yourself a harder question and say, is there a congruency gap or is, do I have to call bullshit on myself, which I did when I created this thing? Are my priorities matching how I'm investing my time? I can tell you from personal experience and from taking thousands of people through this tool, that there is a complete disconnect or a congruency gap between what people are telling themselves are their priorities and how they're investing their time. So to give you an example of that, and I talk about it in the book, real estate investor looks very successful, working his ass off, um, approaches me and says, I'm going, I'm about to go through a divorce. The guy's a multimillionaire. Everyone thinks that he's, you know, he's driving a nice car, living in a nice house, beautiful wife. And his marriage is falling apart because the guy's working like an animal um, because that was his personality um, and just burying his head in, in, in his work. And as a result, he got disconnected from his wife. He, you know, his children grew up without him spending any time with them. And he lost truly and honestly what matters most to him. So he was telling himself that his family was the priority. The guy was working 14 hours a day. So how 
How is, how does that relate to you and where you're at in, in your life? And is there a congruency gap between what you're telling yourself or your priorities and how you're investing your time? And that would be my, my takeaway for the, for the listeners. And I have these tools and, um, you know, on my site, they can download it, but that, that's the takeaway. I think is to ask yourself that question. It's a hard question, but it's one that, um, you know, I think everyone can relate to and, and work on and, and better themselves. Yeah. And I love that about the book. What matters most is even there's one exercise in there where you spend five minutes, um, with each F and it's basically 25 minutes total. Cause there's five minutes per F and there's five S and it's 25 minutes. But what exercise can you put into that five minutes to fulfill that each day? So you're, you you do not have to spend a lot of time on these. It's about 25 minutes altogether. And I know you do, you talk about accountability in the book as well. And you have a Facebook group for that to find an accountability partner. I'm huge on accountability. When I built my online course, there was a huge amount of accountability in that. So I feel you've done a great job with the book and providing lots of resources. So I definitely recommend to everybody listening to check out the book, What Matters Most, because it's full of valuable tools and insights. And if people want to reach out to you or find out more about the book, where can they do that, Brian? I think the best thing is, is uh, you know, they can just go to my website. They can download a free chapter. So it's brianstrone.com. Or you can connect with me on Facebook, and I want to make sure I don't – that URL, uh, Brian Scrone, uh 5Fs uh, on Facebook. I have a, obviously a, a personal and a, and a public page. So I do a lot of videos and, and trying to add value and share um, you know, some of the tools that we just got done talking about on my, uh, my public page on Facebook there. So love to have you join me there. And I'll put all that in the show notes for people to uh, link out to easily. Brian, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure talking with you, Philip, and uh, look forward to uh, hearing the podcast. Thanks, Brian. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Brian Scrohn. I can't believe that is episode 50. Super stoked for that. As we talked about in the podcast, I believe the big takeaway is setting clear priorities and understanding what matters most to you, as the title of Brian's book says. And like Brian talked about the five Fs, family, fitness, friends, finance, and faith, we need to know what our priorities are and really set our life according to that. And there's a great exercise in the book that talks about how you can implement these into your day spending five minutes per each and really making sure you're living in alignment with the life that you want. Because as Brian talked about, we think we are living one life, but if you actually put it down to paper, we're not congruently living the way that we want. And so that's really important. So the key thing for you is to really understand what are your things that are important to you, what matters most to you. And if you can focus on that, that's key for you to start moving in on. There's two things that Brian also talks about in the book fun and flow, something that did not come up in our conversation, but those are also important Fs. And so understanding what is integral to you, because it's something that we don't talk about enough in our society, from my point of view, is understanding who we are and what we want and setting our own priorities. And the more we can do that, the greater inner happiness we're going to have. So on that note, I'm going to leave it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, I ask that you pass it along to one friend. This is how the podcast continues to grow. Thank you so much for tuning in and until next time.